Let us older children bow our heads and pray. To you, O God, the center of all, may we find our place in you and may we find your goodness transforming us, causing us to be born again by the power of love. Give us the capacity this day to trust and try. To see if, in fact, this faith, this way, this truth, this life really is the way, the truth, and the life. In the name of the one who came to show us the way, Jesus the Christ, we pray. Amen. Anyone in this room who's over the age of about 25 will be able to recall the exact place you were 15 years ago today when news came to you about the attacks on the World Trade Center. I myself happened to be at a monastery. That's not my usual place to be, but uh, I happened to be at St. Meinrad Monastery about an hour from here. I'd taken as part of my uh, spiritual formation uh, a routine of going every couple of months and spending some days. I'd gotten to the monastery the day before to do some sermon planning and some prayer, some some centering time. It's usually a place of uh, civility and politeness, but there's not a lot of talk. And I've never, ever seen a television on in, in, uh, at St. Meinrad in all the many times I'd been before. But on this day, I was walking through the lobby right after breakfast. It was about 9.30 or so. And a man had the television on. Someone I'd never seen before, never seen since. But as I walked through, he said, hey, come, come look at this. And when I walked over to the television, I saw one of the World Trade Center towers on fire. Wow, that's weird. The man said a plane flew into it. Whoa, what a weird accident, I said. But before I got the words out, within just a minute or so, here came the second plane flying into the second tower. It wasn't long before we got word that the Pentagon had also been struck and a third uh, site had uh, another plane, yet another plane and that had crashed in Pennsylvania. Panic ensued everywhere and deep, deep fear. Uh, I, I, I was in many ways paralyzed because my oldest child, Kara, it was living in lower Manhattan, just not many blocks from the World Trade Center towers. And I just was paralyzed. The monks who, who happened to be there uh, helped me gather up my things. They said, you, you need to go home, go home. Get with your church, they said. And so I did. I, I, I got in the car and we started back to Louisville. It's only an hour away, but the cell phone reception wasn't very good. But as I drove, we began to plan a service for in this space on the night of September 11th. How many of you were here? Oh, yeah, a lot of us were here that night. It was packed. People were standing on the sides, people standing along the back. And I really remember very little about that night 
except our singing, it is well with my soul. When Satan should buffet, when trials should come, let this blessed assurance control that Christ has regarded my helpless estate and gave his own life for my soul. That, that sense that we weren't alone. We've sung that song, I say we, long before I got here. This church has sung that song in moments of great distress in our community. As we sang it that night, we all felt the weight of that particular moment. September 11, 2001 happened on a Tuesday. Later that week, you'll remember the President of the United States addressing our nation. And we all listened carefully. Democrat, Republican, it didn't matter. Those categories didn't matter. For we were all one and we listened and were united And as the week went on, this particular task of preaching, preaching after September 11th, uh, fell to me, of course. And how do you preach? What do you preach about? You preach about grief. You preach about hope. You preach about love winning. But, But by Sunday, there was this air of sort of a hyper-nationalism that was beginning to permeate the culture. Flags were appearing everywhere. And flag-waving became sort of the order of the day, its own particular act of defiance. And I get it, and I appreciate it. I'm an American. I love our country. I'm grateful for our country. But there was something about it that just didn't feel right in that moment. For this seemed like a moment that wasn't just about the United States, but about we as humanity. And I realized that the kingdom of God is bigger than the United States of America. I'm a child of the 60s, so I saw early on that as much as I love my country and cheer for my country and uh, grateful for my country, I also saw our country's flaws Those times when even when we tried to do the best we could, we ended up doing the wrong thing. It's part of being human. It's part of life. There are times when we were on the wrong side of history. Times when we were the bully and we were the tyrant. So I couldn't get this question out of my mind. What is our nation's place in the events of 2001? Why did they do this to us? Why did they hate us? And are we the only victims with a grievance in this story? Those were hard words to hear 15 years ago, and I realize that today. Maybe my timing was poor, or maybe it's part of my weakness that I speak too quickly or too impulsively. But people, some people, good people, were just unable to hear these questions. It, it disconnected them with them in a profound way and, and, and caused them to be angry, to even leave our church. But 15 years later, I stand by my question and wonder if with the space that we have now of 15 years, we can ask again, where is our place in the events of 9-11? 
We know where we were located, where you were, where you stood, where you sat. But where are we as a people? What's our place? And what part do we play in this larger story? In the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus instructs us, before you try to take the speck out of your neighbor's eye, first take the log out of your own eye. In other words, take care of your own side of the street, as we say. Tend to what is yours to tend to. Take care of our place, our own view of the story, and recognize that it is but one view of the story. So we come this morning on this 17th Sunday in the Pentecost season and the the lectionary readings for the day. Offer us an invitation to let God speak to us. Not to our enemies, but to us. For the Bible is always a critique of the people of God. It's not necessarily a a critique of those who are not the people of God to what we might call the infidels or the terrorists or the enemies. Rather, this is a book that's written for us. It's written out of love. And faith allows and invites the Bible to speak to its intended audience. That is, to us. Even when it's hard. Even when it says, as Jeremiah says, we're lost. We've lost our place. Even as the psalmist says about the people of God, they don't even believe anymore. They may mouth the words, but they don't believe in the mystery of the loving source of all. And then along comes Jesus and describes us like a lost sheep or a lost coin. That which has been separated from the group so that there's no sense of who we are, no sense of identity. That clarity of who we are and how we find ourselves in the Bible when we realize that the Bible is written not just about the bad people, it's written for us. It can become a great source of guidance. It can become kind of a spiritual GPS, if you will, to help calibrate and locate our place in this larger story of the world we live in. Sometimes we find ourselves right in the heart of God. Those moments feel warm and fulfilling and purposeful. But anyone who is a real student and reader of sacred text knows that there's going to be times in every one of our lives when we're surprised to discover, as Paul was in the letter that Lauren read from 1 Timothy, that, whoa, I thought I was in the groove of God when when in reality I am far, far from where I'm supposed to be. Paul said, my former faith understanding took me to the wrong place. I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, a violent person. Here I was thinking I was so close to God, but I was far from God's heart, God's intent. Here I thought I was moving toward the light, and in fact, I was moving toward the darkness. That's a pretty big claim by Paul. That's a pretty hard admission. 
Usually we think of Paul, we think of somebody who's kind of braggy, sort of self-congratulatory. But here he's self-aware, he's humble. And I think whenever that happens in Paul's life or in Joe's life or in your life, the name for that is God. When we have those moments where there's courage that comes from beyond us to allow us to see honestly, where am I? Who am I? And where am I in relation to God? Too often when we confront these failures, the tendency for many of us is to deny it, to repress it, to kind of shut it down. We cannot face it. It's too shameful, and it creates too much cognitive dissonance, too much change in our lives. But if Christ, if Christ can save us, can transform us, We can be given the courage to be honest and identify our own place even when it's painful. And what we find when we do is that we are led into this way, this truth, and this life. This stuff is hard. We're talking about it these days when it comes to racial reconciliation, especially with our African-American brothers and sisters within our own city. We're asking ourselves to see and recognize and name the reality of white privilege, white accessibility, white presumptions and protections that happen too often at the expense of black Americans. This is hard stuff. It's hard for me. It's hard for you. I know it is. But it is the way. We're doing the same thing when it comes to questions of sexual identity. We realize that the old assumptions that we were were given in life are no longer valid. They're no longer true. What we thought was true wasn't true. And we're learning new things. New light comes and we realize, oh, oh, God and life and people are not just binary, one thing or the other. There's a whole spectrum. Oh, this is how God is. This is how God works. It's hard, but it's the way. And 15 years later, after the tragedies, the the great tragedy of September 11, 2001, even as we acknowledge the violence that happened to us, all the pain that was wrought, all the lives that were lost, and, and, and plans that were interrupted, we also have to recognize that the United States of America's policies and positions and postures and presumptions create a context where terrorists, where those who see life differently, who have no power, are going to act with the only power that they can muster. I'm not justifying it, but I'm acknowledging it. I'm acknowledging our role in it. This isn't about shame. This isn't about blame. This isn't about armchair quarterbacking. It's about finding our place in relation to the holy, that which is right and true and life-giving. And really, when we talk about Christian conversion, when we talk of people being saved or, or born again, what we're talking about is having our eyes opened, being touched by sacred love in such a way that we see our place in relation to God 
and we recognize, oh my God, we're being called to walk toward God, to draw closer to God, to let our lostness become foundness as God speaks to us and calls us back into the sacred way, even if it feels scary, and sometimes even if it feels unpatriotic. We know, we believe that grace only works on the lost places, on the broken places, on the unredeemed places in our lives, that when we do this, when we let God heal us, we can be kept from falling and failing and fighting and doing all the things that break and harm this world. And we realize, Lord, have mercy. Lord, have mercy, Christ. Have mercy, for it's not my father. It's not my mother. It's me, O oh Lord, standing in the need of prayer. It's not my enemy. It's not the terror. It's me. Lord, have mercy.
Which brings us to the good news embodied and described by Jesus. This parable from Luke 15 is one of my favorite passages in Scripture for it reminds us of a God who looks for us until we are found. Until we're found. God never stops looking for us. Paul said to Timothy, Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. And then he said, I'm the chief among them. This recognition of where we are in the story invites us then to come where Christ is, to be pulled from the danger and darkness of our own brokenness and to find that place in the freedom and the light of Christ. That's what will save the world. That's what will save the world. No amount of military power, no amount of intelligence, not more money, not more control, only sacred, forgiving, reconciling, transforming love made flesh again and again and again can save the world, and it will. But we have to believe in it. We have to live it. We have to translate it so that it transcends language or religion or race. And Highland, you're doing it so beautifully. You're doing it so beautifully. You refuse the spirituality of fear and retaliation and judgment. You recognize those subtle forms of prejudice and white privilege, and we're working on it. We're not there yet, but we're working And we respond in love to human need. Whether it's the Congolese family, or a mentally ill family, or just a regular old family, which is having its own 911 experience, where the plane has flown into the building and chaos and mayhem have ensued, but we're there and we love and we care. I'm sure you'll be delighted to know that we're about to enter the fundraising season here at Highland Baptist Church. Our theme this year is Giving Love, which is a riff off of Susan Coleman's brilliant idea for a theme for our capital campaign some years ago, which was called Building Love. This is Giving Love. It's kind of a pithy little theme, don't you think? But it's the hope of the gospel. In fact, I would say giving love is the heart of the gospel. It's what this whole thing is about. That's what saves us. Christ's giving love in us and others like us is what will save the world. And so this morning, the invitation is not just for visitors. It's for all of us to be saved, to be brought close to God, to follow this way and find ourselves close to the light and close to God. For we were placed in this earth, said the poet, a little space that we might bear the beams of love to the glory of God now and always. Let's pray together. Sometimes our lives seem tiny and inconsequential. But when your light shines in us, 
and from us, things happen. Things connect. Healing, wholeness, life, community, it all happens. So, O God, teach us how to turn our enemies into our brothers and sisters who they really are. Teach us how to know our own place, to, like the apostle of old, to be able to name and confess with both humility and hope, here's who I was, here's who I am now. And at the end of the day, may it not be about any single church or any single religion. May it be about your work of love being manifest in human beings of all types. In your holy name we pray. Amen.